Arriving four years after David Fincher had sworn off directing another feature film, citing that he'd rather have cancer than return to the director's chair for a featured film, the ghost of Alien 3 hung very heavy over Fincher's career, even though after its disastrous production, he'd returned to his more below, more familiar terrain of making music videos and interesting commercials. However, it was a script for... A seven which coming across his desk with the wrong ending um written by andrew kevin walker who told a story of an unnamed city on the east coast where a serial killer is using the seven deadly senses motif in the series of murders and the story itself framed by two detectives the elder detective uh, played by morgan freeman detective somerset teamed up with the short-tempered but idealistic new detective David Mills player played by young Brad Pitt, the pair using their weight to ensure that Fincher got the ending that he wanted rather than the lighter ending that New Line had been pushing for, in turn the film really announcing Fincher as a director of note. I'm Owen. I'm Kim. You're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. So tonight we're obviously talking about Seven, uh, the phenomenal film from 1995, and a film which even now we're still talking about all these years later. It's one of those films that came out and just seemed ever so fresh, much like Scream uh, did for the sort of mid-90s for the slasher film. Here we saw horror being refreshed because at this point it had been very much overwhelmed in you know, increasing numbered slasher series. I mean, we had, like, the night, the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets were both up in there in the 8s and the 5s. And just horror as a whole seemed very sort of in need of something fresh and new. And certainly with Andrew Kevin Walker's script for Seven, we finally got that, as here we not only had a thriller filmed with an extremely interesting motif, but we also had... A very stylistic film uh, with Fincher truly firing on all cylinders as he set out to paint a unnamed city on the west coast where it just rains all the time and scum and corruption are just really just the backdrop for this city which these murders are taking place as perhaps a sermon in, is being carried out as he forces uh, his victims to atone for the sins that they represent now Kim I mean Obviously, Seven is a film that I've seen numerous times before. I think it's the Fincher back catalogue. It's probably the film I've seen the most. Um, what's your sort of history with the film? <laughs> I actually think I, I only saw it when it came out. And because I saw it so young, I yeah. I never actually went back to revisit it because it kind of haunted me a little. Like, I, 
I still remember, like, when I was re-watching this the other day for our recording today, I, I still had, like, vivid memories of all of these sins and how, like, each of these, um, each of these murders were committed, right? So, I mean, to say that I didn't really need to re-watch a lot of it, just re-watching it was, was kind of like a memory of the deeper elements, so, you know, I never, I don't think I, I don't know, I don't have a habit of re-watching movies a lot, except for, like, I don't know, very light and fluffy movies. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was just something about this film that just really drew me in the first time I watched it. It was really quite unlike anything I'd seen before, the whole motif of using Seven Deadly Sins, and just the visuals that we're being presented with here were just truly unlike anything that I'd actually seen before. I mean, here we see Fincher teaming up with Darius uh, Konji, who's a French cinematographer, and he's probably best known for his work on the likes of Delicatessen, See the Lost Children, and if you're obviously a fan of those films, you'll see the, see like the same sort of style coming across here in Seven. The pair working very closely together to create this very interesting uh color scheme here we've got those shades of blue we've got the fungal greens and it's everything is uh, yeah. shot in very sort of dark rooms and if we have any sort of light at all it's normally in sort of like a piercing red or shot with flashlights i mean the scenes where fincher would basically set up cardboard piece of the cardboard for the so the actors had a guide of where to shine their flashlights just to achieve the effects he was wanting and the whole time he's really setting out to capture this almost claustrophobic feeling of this city um none of the sets are opened if we're shooting in a kitchen it's a compressed kitchen you he wanted that sort of like almost beehive feeling of the city where everyone's sort of rubbing shoulders with everyone else there's no sort of space to breathe and it's a very sort of claustrophobic experience and i think he perfectly captures that with this film right from the opening murder as we see the victim of uh, the victim uh, has been marked for the sin of gluttony for sure i think that one of the you know one of the main things that really defines this film is right away we can see um some of his signature kind of like his um his trademarks that really shine in this movie and that has to go with you know obviously you mentioned it is is that uh, gloomy city kind of feeling of always raining and it's being very like just dark all the time and all the rooms that's shot in is very dark and very you know because it's so sinful i guess there's there's like a lot of gross moments and and, and dirty and and whatever you know like a lot of things that coordinate with you know badder traits like worse traits in 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 i don't know just the general yeah, I mean, just I mean, as you said, with the trademarks, I mean, this is the first of Fincher's dark urban settings. We'd obviously got hints of it with Alien 3, but that was sort of more sort of hidden under that industrial yeah. aesthetic. But here he really sort of gives us his first sort of taste of this, like, dark urban aesthetic that appears so frequently throughout his films. And it's almost like when you look at the Fincher films that these stories could all take place within the same city and all we're doing is just basically kind of like the wire we're just like moving the focus with each story that's being told it's sort of like with this one we're going to be focusing in like the downtown areas where these crimes are happening and then when we look at panic room we're going slightly more upstate um so we're looking at sort of like more sort of like what we like Perhaps he would like to compare this to New York. This would be where we are now. Will be sort of like Hell's Kitchen, and when we go to Panic Room, we're sort of like more in the Manhattan area with, mm -hmm. like that, uh, 
yeah. with those uh, sort of more expensive sort of builds there. So it's uh, it's really sort of interesting just how early on he gets it, nails this aesthetic because with other directors that we've sort of looked at before, they normally take a couple of movies before they really find their stride. But I think because he spent so long making like music videos and doing advertisements, he sort of knew what he wanted when he was given this chance to work with a large canvas and certainly here where he's obviously got the backing of both like Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman they're using their sort of star power to really push across what Fincher wanted with the film because New Line again were trying to force a happy ending onto this film they wanted to make several cuts and like Brad Pitt in particular was like you know if you don't shoot it with like these dark motifs I'm just going to walk from the film and that was basically all New Line needed to hear, just to leave Fincher alone on this one. So you kind of wish that Fincher had had yeah. that sort of backing when it came to dealing with the executives of Fox and Alien 3. But at the same time, I mean, he was still, that was his first feature. He doesn't really have a lot of sort of weight. And we see this now when you like look at the Marvel movies and, uh, and such, where they hire in these young directors just because the studio knows that they can get what they want because these act these directors don't have the sort of like pull that uh, a more experienced director would have so that's why every marvel movie pretty much looks the same <laughs> yeah but then i mean you know if we talk about marvel it's a whole different discussion of you know we can look at all the directors and what they've done and where they've gone from those movies and it's it's a whole different experience um so, I mean, I think Fincher, Fincher is very lucky, I think, to have this in his second as a second movie because Seven is is one of those, you know, scripts and and casting that and, and you know, paired up with his style. It's just so fitting. I mean, obviously here we, you know, I just I want to finish talking about kind of like the setting before we move forward. And I think that one of those things that are really obvious here is. In, in in just the setup of every shot. I mean, I remember, you know, in the last episode, we were talking about a lot of trademarks about about Fincher in general and using those tints that you mentioned before of green and blue and whatnot. And here I remember the one of the first scenes of, you know, just watching them, watching the, the two detectives walk down the street. And it's just all the storefronts were green <laughs> in shades of green. And... It's something that I would never have noticed, I think, before. But when you watch this, you see them walking past and then they're in these non-green shades, right? They're in, in white and black and gray and whatever, brown or whatever, or khaki or something like that. And you see these colors and they really, like, pop on the screen. They really, like, frame these two characters. And I think that, you know, obviously, you know, he has so much experience with movie, like, filming music videos and whatnot that... I think that really does come into play because he has this really like probably just a better grasp of just capturing a shot and framing those shots to what he wants in in whatever different space and with capturing the movement and and just the interaction of these characters to really like give them that that yeah. spotlight. I mean there's also a, a much overlooked effect here and when it comes to the lighting effects and you notice that the lighter the film is so the more daylight we see the more in control our killer is the unnamed John Doe however when the darker the film gets so the scenes where it's almost like pitch black and that shows the, those are the scenes where the detectives are more in control of the situation and I just love the fact that as you, when you rewatch the film you see 
you start paying more attention to how these shots are composed because every single shot in this film is so memorably composed there's so much memorable imagery and this is a film yeah. where we see have some truly horrific acts but we never see them happen we're always dealing with the aftermath of these effects everything's described or it's given yeah. little flashes of what something could be as we're obviously getting to a bit later but that's the but you know that's like that, that's kind of a signature of fincher also right when he chooses these scripts he always films it through the point of view of his characters so we're not in the point of view of our antagonists of the killer we're we're in the point of view of of our two detectives so when they move on to a scene or whichever and in this case it's more kind of even detective somerset's point of view because we see a lot of things through his eyes um much less you know because there was only i think a short part of the film where like brad pitt's character is really you know just taking taking on that scene by himself yeah, in the when we have the the crosstown sort of chase sequence there, with uh, when they go to go yeah. to John Doe's apartment, and again when we when we're in the apartment, everything's absolutely pitch black, and then when we're in the city, it's slightly lighter. When we hear our big conclusion, it's brilliant daylight. It's just a lot of fun little ways that uh, the moods constantly sort of played with, and it's is it as I say, it's just just really it's a film which just conscious constantly like plays up plays in the face of like all the typical conventions of this this could be so easy to sort of like a lethal weapon style sort of clone and some like buddy cop drama you know you've got the aging cop who's just like a couple of days away yeah. from retirement you've got the young hot-headed cop and i think when we certainly look at these characters in mills and somerset they're we have to we have that perfect odd couple pairing here they're both at opposite ends of the spectrum we've got mills who's so we've got uh, somerset who's so he's methodical he's really sort of seen what the city has to offer and he's sort of become very sort of no to the world he sees around him and there's a deleted scene that uh, was originally supposed to be at the start of the film where we see him visiting a house that he's planning to buy outside of the city and he cuts out a rose of uh, that's in the wallpaper and he keeps it on his person it's sort of like this reminder of what he's working towards now and we play this in comparison to Brad Pitt's character Mills who's he's come from the country he's come to the city because he wants to make a name for himself and he knows he can't make it a name for himself out in the country he has to come to the big bad city to make it and at the same time you know he's quick tempered he's always in a hurry he's hot headed and there's so many times that we see this like being reflected not just in their interactions with each other but also in how they choose to approach the case we have like the scene where somerset goes to the library and he's getting all these philosophical books and he's doing printouts Mm -hmm. and we compare it to mills who's basically getting the cliff notes because he can't get his head around like (laughs) the the uh musings of um of like paradise lost or dante these things are completely lost on him so he's using the cliff notes because he has to try and keep up somehow. So Yeah, and I think that really, you know, that really highlights... It's the contrast of these two characters also. And the differences of their them that really, you know, they have a little obviously like kind of like <laughs> shit talk towards each other, obviously. Like Morgan Freeman is always like, you know, when he's telling him about his emotions and, and just kind of like separate it from the scene itself. 
and and he's and he and you know the other guy and then Mills is is kind of like a man of emotions kind of thing because he's so quick tempered and then when it kind of like blows up in his face all this you know especially this talk in general really is the focal point of what happens at the end uh what really you know is is the reasoning behind what he's trying to tell him about you know how he should approach the cases and not really bring that much personal emotions and too much i guess attachment to the case itself but he should have kind of like a a further perspective to have that kind of uh methodical i guess methodical approach that he uses to be kind of you know to see the details to be able to lock into the details and different you know their different approaches kind of kind of play off each other a lot really interesting where you see as the film sort of goes on and we and as we get to like that third act where you see these two detectives have found the middle ground and in many ways they've rubbed off on on each other we've where you can see like mills is sort of slowing down he's taking in what somerset's trying to teach him and at the same time we see somerset Mm -hmm. just like giving up on the on his sort of like calm nature and we see like in that third act where he's this metronome that he's been using to drown out the sounds of the city so he can sleep at night. He just basically picks up and throws across the room and spends like his evening throwing his switchblade into a, into his uh, dartboard because he's just so wound up, but he's feeling that same sort of anger that uh, Mills has. And I, their initial introduction, how Somerset teaches Mills, treats Mills like he's just like some rookie, even though Mills is an experienced detective um he's quite happy to do he just sends mills off to like go and do door-to-door canvassing and rather he'd rather profile the, the scene himself rather than be sort of saddled with this rookie <laughs> but it also i think has to do with the fact that i think he he's somewhat of a you can also call it kind of uh what do you call it he's more of like a a man of few words he's noticing the details he's not about you know um just you know i don't know <laughs> shooting the shit or whatever you know he's because <laughs> he, you know mills is there and he's just like talks and he talks about his experiences really trying very hard to show that he has experience and depth in what he does and he's he's had his experiences that warrants his position there whereas in many cases i think somerset is more about just seeing your actions will speak louder than your words in that sense where like him being able to solve this case and see those details and really focus on things because when you start in the movie and in especially in that first scene with um with gluttony you really see this uh mills being very inexperienced you start seeing him talking about this scene and being very very subjective he has his prejudices and how he just kind of like pegs the 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 death right away questioning whether it is a homicide um whether you know like his his kind of uh very i guess his disgust over obese people and then you hear a lot of like a lot of negative talk and a lot of judgment um a lot of prejudices towards the the scene before really looking through the details but as you know somerset comes in he doesn't talk so much he's there looking at the scene and really questioning like looking for those details which 
is which you know shows why and then he's the one who notices you know like oh the hands and feet are tied and the there there's all these mark uh, the, these different things that are happening like the bucket and all the and all those little details and it kind of like shuts mills up for a yeah. second i mean with somerset i mean the whole character of uh, somerset was a little more chatty in the original script um and finch had trimmed down a lot of the lines mainly because you know morgan freeman can do so much more with so little and it really sort of works yeah. the character. I mean, when you look at the character Somerset and how he questions things, it's sort of like, you know, what did the kids see? Did you see any blood in the bucket? And Mills is sort of like more rapid fire. It's sort of like, it's like, oh, did you check the pulse? Did you do this? Did you do that? And um, when he's like looking under the bu- <laughs> looking in the bucket, and he's sort of like, oh, it's just full of shit. And he's sort of like, and Somerset's only reaction, he's like completely unfazed by this. It's almost like he was expecting to wander into the scene. And he's all like, oh, do you see any blood? And Mills is just like completely disgusted and can't understand how he can remain so calm in this grotesque scene that's laid out before them. Because here we have like a morbidly obese man who's been left lying face down in spaghetti sauce. And. As we find out later, I mean, this is a man who's been forced to eat himself to to death and to his stomach burst. This is uh, how John Doe's decided to play out the sin of gluttony. And just all those little details we see around, it's just, just like how that, when we go in and we see how the victim's sort of like framed in the centre of the frame, and when we go back to the scene how all these little mm-hmm. details uh, come into come into frame. We're constantly looking over the shoulder. So Finch is shooting this in almost like reality TV sort of style. It's like you're watching like the most extreme episode of Cops at times, like the way the camera moves in this. So. <laughs> and I just like love as well the fact that every single crime scene is always so different. It's, there's no sort of like repetition in there. They're each sort of meticulously set up and presented as uh, Somerset highlights they're presented like sermons that we're supposed to be taking in and obviously they're all based around these these seven deadly sins and I think that was always the, the big appeals when I heard about the concept and it first came out it's like well how are they going to do you know this sin how do you do sloth how do you do lust and it was sort of like that was like my main sort of joy is just to find out how you do all these sins and the fact that when you watch it and there's this whole <laughs> deeper story this how this investigation is carried out it just really adds a whole another level to it other than just like this you know almost like cheap throw of seeing uh people bumped off in very sort of gruesome ways <laughs> yeah and and I, I mean it's it's one of those things that i think in a second watch or whatnot you see a lot more of the details is there is a lot of depth and and the story itself is very twofold right on one side we're we're talking about finding this killer who who is executing people using these seven sins but at the same time you're also seeing um pretty much the discussion of what what makes a detective right your different views about being a detective between somerset and mills because mills is mills has his experience obviously and then somerset has his other experiences and the reasoning of why somerset is so set on leaving after this week why is he so set on leaving the job what is his reasons for quitting and that becomes kind of like a central focus of talk as to why he's leaving and it it brings up a lot of deeper conversation between the two of you know just how they see the city and how they see the job and and the values of the job and and the society around them and 
and all and just you know being around and how they treat the different of all these bad things that you have to deal with especially when they're work, working in homicide and and it it puts even more into play when you're you're seeing that his last case is this gruesome series of crimes based on sins um you know in in this already pretty gloomy set that he's thinking about you know as he's leaving this 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 office and explains why he doesn't want this to be the last job that he did the last case that he does yeah and i mean certainly it's, he openly admits the fact that because it, it gets built up so much in their mind that's this idea even when the killer like presents himself to the police there's still this sort of disbelief as that you know this is the guy this is this monster we've been been tracking this very sort of average everyday looking sort of person claiming to be responsible for these uh, murders so um and i have to say it's a real sort of credit to kevin space i mean this is probably one of kevin space's greatest roles and he did this and he did Usual Suspects back to back and Fincher didn't actually know about the twist in Usual Suspects so when he found out he actually uh, said to Spacey it's like what the hell man you're trying to be the criminal mastermind in all my mo- in all the movies <laughs> I mean Fincher again he really closely defended like whether Spacey was going to was the actual killer or not I mean he was not showing any of the promotion materials his name's not listed on the poster he gets first billing on the end credits um, almost as sort of like a, you know, to give him his due. But uh, yeah, he's he gets no mention in any of the sort of credits. So when he just sort of like appears out of nowhere, um, there's there is that that is this the guy? It just seems like too easy. Like whatever film do you know where the criminal just hands himself That's in? That's really a, you know, the 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 credit goes to the writer, right? Because you, you can't really... I think it's a good move that they didn't put Kevin Spacey as, you know, obviously on the poster and stuff like that. Because that would really ruin the whole secret yeah. of who is the person behind this, right? It, it kind of ruins that surprise because that's the, that's the twist. And that's the great thing about this film is that Kevin Spacey doesn't really come into play. He's kind of like the man in a trench coat and then the man down the hall who's running away and, and you know the man walking from the distance and this killer who's doing all these things that we're only seeing in the aftermath. And he really only comes out in the third act when he hands himself over. And you start seeing those little details of, you know, obviously him being, you know, who he is um, and, and just, you know, the little traces that we have of him kind of being present throughout the movie, but you never really notice him being there. But he's actually been to these places kind of thing. And then when you get to the end, you know, the thing is, we realize that the he is a mastermind because he's he he literally he yeah. wouldn't be there if he didn't want to be there. So he he he's like while they don't want to believe that he's running the show, he is running the show because everything that he's planned, even from that point of confessing and or not and showing up there, he already has a plan to. You know, if they don't take the, if they don't want the full confession and, and takes one off in, option, he already has a plan that will save him from being in, in, in you know, a worse situation kind of situation, kind of deal. But it also kind of is, is very good because of a character that is so non-present throughout the entire movie. He plays such a deep role. Like, we understand this killer a little bit through his actions and just how smart he actually is 
by just that one scene, of, like one fi- finale moment of him I showing mean, up. I you say that, but at the same time, we take into consideration, we're given bits and pieces of the mentality of John Doe throughout the film. The opening credits in particular, yeah. again, another startling opening sequence, a real trademark of Fincher. And here is yes. really one of his best ones, as uh, set to a reworked version of Nine Inch Nails Closer we see the making of the John Doe books which are given us a mentality an insight into mm-hmm. the mentality of these books can, that contain you know the thoughts and the psychotic ramblings of this man in the world that he sees around him and at the same time we're seeing him you know he's slicing the uh, he's slicing the uh, fingerprints off his, his fingers and all this is showing in like little yeah. shots and spurs and even like as the credits appear, they're trying to get away from the horror that is unveiling on the screen. And we're getting little flashes of bits and pieces. It's almost as though you're sort of like looking at the face of people and then you're turning away but just at the sort of the key moment. So we get these little hints and pieces of, of uh, bits and pieces that are, are there. And I mean, these notebooks that we see in the John Doe apartment, they were designed by Clive uh, Piercy and John Sable. And Sable did the handwriting for the books and the the little there's a little um little i'm trying to think what that uh fred is the the piece of um cotton that goes between your books the little bookmarks um are all designed so that they represent mm-hmm. the different sins are all sort of color-coded and just the amount of effort they put into the into these books there's so much detail that they put into the books if, if you watch the me- yeah. making of uh, featurette uh, that's on the dvd it shows just how much detail they put in they put like uh there's like a suicide note from a convict that was like tear stain they threw in there there's like all this psychotic like rambling there's crime scene and medical mm-hmm. medical textbook photos um all of this we get little flashes on we see it as um somerset's flicking through the pages of the book and i think that whole john doe apartment sequence is really sort of like where you enter into the mind of the killer because up until this point we've had little flashes we've got yeah. general ideas of what trains he's working on because we've had uh the scene where somerset uses his his contact um who we're never sure which sure which branch he works for but we know he has access to the library records and that really had me wondering whether that's uh how true that is that you know certain books in the library system would be like flagged and that your details could be passed along which really makes you question what you rent to the library and much less back in the days of when you went to like uh, the video store and rented stuff and let someone could be see how many times you're renting navy seals or something so it's um i think (laughs) of all the sort of sequences the john doe apartment is probably one of my favorite scenes just because it's it's one of those those rare moments where we're actually getting to see inside the psyche of somebody. I mean, here we've got like the crucifix, and we see like these signs of him being like a religious fanatic. We see, obviously, the um, the the trophies that he keeps of his in the cases of uh, his yeah. victims, like this the gluttony one. Uh, he's got the little um, cancer spaghetti sauce, and we've got the photo for which yeah. obviously leads us on to the lost killing, which is. Uh, of of his intended victim so it's um it's, it's just so of i don't think i've ever seen another sort of you know killer led done as well as the one we see here and the fact is 
it's absolutely pitch dark and this is obviously a key revelation for these two detectives the fact that they've stumbled on the epicenter of John Doe's madness in many ways and even though all the pieces are there the fact that just the time constraints that they're under none of it can really be used like they've got all his his diaries there but they can't go through them all in time because it's going to take too long to go through every single book to try and find out where he's going next with uh, the murders but the little bits that we get Somerset reading and stuff is uh, again it's just these weird fascinated ramblings that of John Doe's uh, head the fact that he's uh, he's uh, it, it's, it's hard to say whether he, he's sort of suffered a break or the fact he's so he's suffering that sort of classic illusion where the more insane you get the more wo- the world around you makes sense which is what I always got about uh, got from his sort of like world view that he seems to work under so and I think it really when we have the, like the final sort of interview with him when he's in the back of the cop car it really shows this real clarity of vision of the world he sees around him so. yeah I mean he, he's he's a man who, who has a deep belief that's kind of he truly like you, you start feeling like he truly believes that kind of like some higher powers is like this he is doing a good thing for the world by you know getting rid of these people who who who, to him you know he goes off on a rant when they call them innocents that they're not innocent and and how you know each of these sins is is so yeah unforgivable and i mean we also hear of a killer who's so methodical in his approach he never feels to seems to be under any sort of pressure to speed up this plan that he's got in in place we find out like when we look at the sloth murder um the fact that he's had this guy strapped up for a year and he's been you know collecting samples he's been doing these photos the fact he hangs up air fresh and discovered from the smell and pays the rent so nobody assumes that's going on and yet here we've got a guy who's so horribly mutilated and neglected i mean the fact is that as the doctor says you know they could shine a flashlight in his in his eyes and it would kill him um it just really it's just this real methodicalness whereas other killers we see in other films are always like in a rush to sort of like as soon as they get that sort of heat on them they're sort of like rush to to get the next kill done they start becoming sloppy and john doe never becomes sloppy at all he's just Everything just seems to play into his hands the way he wants it, and I think it all rests on the uh, the much answered question of what's in the box. <laughs> but that's the thing is, you know, even up to that that point, we start realizing that John Doe is someone who who is, you know, like we call him methodical, and who's actually planned everything, and he observes the even the things that you don't think he's observing. He's he's been around much you know much longer than they've they've imagined. Just giving him that that edge where he controls the entire thing. Every single moment that he he plans, he knows he's gonna win at, at what he's doing. If you call it winning, right? I mean, he's gonna succeed at the goal that he wants, and this is what leads to obviously the final end game of of making the choice. Of you know that 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 le- I don't know if we should talk spoilers or not because I feel like that's kind of more crucial. So <laughs> it's a, I think we owned. I think it's been pretty it, much spoiled it, to death. But we'll just say spoiler alert from this point on. Then yeah, yeah. So like what you know, like the, to the point where you know he's planned it to the T. Where 
it's it's like he wants Mills to kill us, kill him to accomplish the final sin. And to have that kind of meticulous thinking, kind of once you get to the end, as we get to that moment, and he's kind of you really feel like he's manipulating the situation to to where he needs to be. He becomes such a more scary killer than when he, when we were not only just we were just looking at you know all those planned out scenes and and all those planned out crimes that he had that you know this last part was even kind of like shock after shock you realize what he's doing yeah and uh, when we look at the the sort of key crossroad moments where mills is essentially being set up to complete this this be the final piece in this puzzle and we should go to that shot of doe and we got the sun behind him almost like this this halo he's like this twisted messiah who's been sent to make us all atone for our sins through these uh murders he's committed that we're all going to have to we're all going to have to atone for uh, of what we've seen. And the fact is, is he openly admits, he's like, what I'm going to create is going to be puzzled over for years to come. And he knows, he's going into this, he knows the end game here, but in his mind that uh, this is going to be the completion of this, this sermon he's giving. Because we look at his, and again, we look at his apartment, I mean, it's not just where he lives. I mean, this is his, his sanctuary, it's his church, it's like, the representation of his perverted belief that you know society can be cleansed by bringing attention to these sins that are, are committed I mean, and he even breaks it down like why he chooses each of the victims it's like i chose the fat man because he represents gluttony he would be the sort of man that you would point out in the street to your friends so they could join you in mocking him and it's like i chose the lawyer and i'm sure you're all thanking me for that i chose the disease spreading whore and like the woman who couldn't dare to be seen as ugly on the outside it's like Every single one of these uh, these people he's picked, they're not just random people. These have been meticulously picked because they perfectly represent what he wants yeah. them to represent. So, so it's very hard to sort of argue with him. Um, and even though we we feel so sure the detectives are going to win this one because we have the scene where. They're shaving the test and they're sharing a joke about workman's comp and you know, it, it all seems like the setup like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna crack this case, we're gonna take this guy down, and in the end it's sort of like it's all for for naught, even though the original script had a happier ending because test audiences didn't particularly like the darker ending and they tried to play around with it and not have uh Gwen Patra's head in the box. But you know, I think that I think that that's such a that's such a key point to what made Seven such a success? Aside from, you know, obviously all the other things that we talked about, whether it's Fincher's talent and the <coughs> character design and development yep. of, you know, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. And and just and, and just in general, everything pieced really well together, like a really good script as well. But I think, you know, sometimes it's important to have these darker endings. And for for Seven, I think if the ending was happier, it would not have had made such an impact till today. I mean, you think about it, it's, it's 90, it's, this movie came out in 95 and we're talking about what, like, yeah, uh, what, 25 years down the road or something. Right. And it, and it still has that impact that, that, you know, it is, it's crazy to think about the impact that it still has on, on 
people and, you know, how much people still really love this movie and, and still remember this movie. I mean, just myself to, to be exact, like I never rewatched it, but I still remember so many of the scenes so vividly. And one of those scenes I remember extremely vividly is, yeah, is, you know, what's in the box. Right. And um, I mean, they, they tried to, try to do it. I mean, they tried to have it. So it's like Mills's dog said in the box, um, and they even tried this bits of the script that still remain there, such as the fact that he asks how the kids are, and then he goes in and plays with his dog. So it was supposed to really sort of weigh the audience things. And the sort of end compromise being that they have Somerset doing the um, giving that line at the end about how the world is a is a wonderful place and worth saving, and how he agrees with the second book. Yeah, the yeah. world is fine place and worth fighting for. Which and is he only such agrees a, with the second part. Every time I see someone like doing movie quotes, they always use that one. It's like, oh god, it's it's become more so worn out than the dead parrot sketch in Monty Python at this point. But it, you know, it gave the <laughs> studio enough confidence in that this was a slightly lighter ending because it gave, you know, Somerset the feeling that you know he was getting some of his sort of humanity back there he wasn't he saw some good in the world finally which up until this point he hadn't really he'd seen a lot of people sort of squandering the world around him such as like the security guards in the library the fact that as he points out they're surrounded by books and they choose to stay up all night playing poker um <laughs> and uh, again the, the there's very few moments of sort of lightness he finds in it in in this, I mean, he tries to have some sort of friendship with uh, Mills's wife, who they, I mean, they meet in secret, and he he admits that you know he at one point he was going to be a father, but he made his his partner give up the baby, and uh, because he couldn't see a child being raised in this world around him, it was just, and she's been so she's like being crushed by this world around that that Mills. It, for whatever reason, he seems to be pushing the side. I think where it's because of his career or just the fact he's so wrapped up in this case, but he doesn't seem to see this all like the same sort of scummy world um, that you know Somerset and and Tracy see around. And you know, Tracy just basically wants to go back to the uh, the simple life of the country, really. So. But you know, but that all comes down to you know this the 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 contrast that we have between them, right? When they have this whole chat about about just um you know the reason for for an argument over why somerset is retiring and and just when mills shares his views of of you know just the the job itself you can see that he's you know what you call it in the beginning he's idealistic so it could be ambition it could be just he believes that this job is doing good to the world still and that's because he's still young I think that, you know, a lot of times it's Somerset started off in that place where where Mills is at right now when he was younger. But through all these years and living in this city and all the things he's had to give up and the regrets that he's had over, you know, the, all, all the, like, just say, like, the baby and whatnot that, that, you know, and the relationship that he had, you can see that Somerset is really burnt out by just this world around him, this this evil that he has to kind of keep you know the world that he has to keep fighting for and this evil that keeps coming up all the time and all these crimes that happen that yeah, get worse and worse so. and i think while we obviously dismiss dismiss tracy's character in many 
for the most part, because she's, I mean, she's Mills' wife, and when you initially watch the film, you don't think she's that important, but she really does play a, lot, a really, sort of a key role within the film, and when they were talking about, you know, casting for the role, I mean, they, Fincher wanted to get uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in, and her people were basically like, no, Gwyneth is not going to be a head in a box. She is not going to accept the role. And he was lucky Brad Pitt was obviously <laughs> dating her at the time and he, you know, nudged in the direction and she basically gave in and gave like a a 10 second um, sit down for the reading of the script and announced that she needed to go to the bathroom and that was basically all Finch needed to see to cast her in the role. And I think her role in this film is so understated the fact that she acts as this neutral this go-between between Mills and Somerset because the two are at loggerheads and it's really when she puts she invites Somerset um, to dinner despite what uh, Mills would rather do because he'd rather just not have anything to do with this cantankerous old man who keeps pulling him down and treating him like some rookie but it's over dinner that the two sort of <laughs> they find that common sort of ground and it's ironically over the fact that uh, Mills lives in such a crummy apartment that we see that sort of first sort of glimpse of the human side of Somerset, really. The fact he's so amused that everything in this apartment rattles because yeah. they've basically been um, sold this crappy apartment, but they were only shown it when the subway wasn't running so that they didn't realise how everything rattles. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, Tracy is a character that kind of grounds our two detectives. He kind of brings them back to the real world. They're, they're more than, you know, just detectives in this <coughs> world of evil and crime they kind of bring a little bit of light into these two lives um just you know that they have something other than just murders to solve um while we're obviously talking about the supporting cast here there's some really great actors here we should really sort of note here we got ollie emery probably best known as the drill instructor in full metal jacket here playing the police captain he was originally going to play john doe um but uh, then you know, they got Kevin Spacey for the role and uh, he took on the role as the police captain. It's kind of a shock to see him not just shouting and swearing abuse at people for a change. Uh, we also get Richard Roundtree, Shaft himself, <laughs> plays the district attorney. Uh, we also get to see, for people who, uh, who love 80s cinema in particular, John C. McGinley as a SWAT team leader, who's just a human chameleon. And it's always fun to see him to spot him playing random roles in things he's turns up in a lot of oliver stone movies for some reason and you probably best know him from uh his role mm-hmm. as um in scrubs um and then there's a lot of other little fun little cameos here and there such as um the person who plays the plays the prostitute is um actually fincher's set director and we get to see um morgan freeman's son plays the fingerprint an assist technician so there's uh and there's you see a couple of the other sort of like regular sort of fincher mob that uh come in and do the little bit roles as well so um oh and we've obviously got uh michael matisse as the massage parlor owner and uh leland osner is the crazed man who uh is forced to participate in the lost murder which i have to say that's a that's a stand-up performance right there so there's a man who's just been shocked to <laughs> his core. Um, and is, is, is to do fear well is, is not an easy 
easy thing, but I've never seen like someone who's just been like so utterly broken by what he's been forced to participate in. So Well, I mean, if you listen to the description of what he had to do <laughs> it's 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 easy <laughs> to imagine fear, isn't it? <laughs> so Um For myself, I mean, Seven remains this absolute masterpiece in future filmography. I mean, it's been perhaps overshadowed by other films that he's since followed up with, such as Fight Club and Social Network. But there's just something about Seven that just really can't be dismissed. I mean, yes, we all pretty much know the ending and perhaps some of us have seen it numerous times before, but this is a film that even if you know what's coming up, there's still an absolutely engrossing and fascinating film to watch and certainly if I ever catch like it on whenever I'm flicking through the channel so it'd be one of those films that I have to sort of sit and watch right through to the end and it's a very small sort of group of movies that uh, that belongs to you know like Jaws and Predator um, and this being another example of that so which is probably why I've seen it so much right so on to further viewing really um, I've got a couple of ones but is there anything you want to with, okay? I don't have a ton. Um, I'm. I looked at more kind of like endings, uh, like kind of more gloomy endings, or kind of things more along this kind of like twisty murderer kind of thing. And obviously, you know, the first that comes to your mind when you think about twisty murderers would probably be Silence of the Lambs. And then the second one, which stretches a little bit further, probably, uh, which I remembered it being such a gloomy ending, and I've never, and it's one of the reasons also why I haven't gone back to watch it is um, Gone Baby Gone. Yeah, very, very good choices. As for myself, um, I would recommend another Andrew Kevin Walker film, 8mm from 1999, greatest movie year ever, uh, directed by Joel Snumacher. It sees Nicolas Cage as a private investigator who comes across what he believes is a, a real-life snuff film and sets out to investigate the authenticity of the film, finding himself uh, delving into a deep and dark world of underground filmmaking. Um, and that's a film that is really worth uh, checking out. I know because it's Nicolas Cage, people tend to just dig holes in it because, you know, they don't have to write properly and it's just very cheap criticism to start picking holes on how Nicolas Cage acts and whether it's perhaps too overacting for yourself. But 8mm is an absolute standout film, not only for Nicolas Cage, but also Ju Schumacher as well. Another director who's often sort of tired as being sort of throwaway just because he did Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, this is a director who also gave us the likes of Falling Down, um, as well as Tigerland and Phone Booth. So, really as he movie. puts it, I've made some crappy movies and I've made some good movies. So, Joe Schumacher is definitely um, a really interesting director in terms of his filmography when you look at the films he's done and just, you know, other than the sort of like one or two sort of misfires that he's had throughout his sort of career there. Um, the other film I'm going to recommend, and that's um, One Hour Photo from 2002, directed by Mark Romanak. Again, another, another director, much oh, like uh, Fincher, he started off in making you know adverts and music videos and has had less of a successful transfer into making feature films. But Mark Romanak's uh, One Hour Photo, which stars Robin Williams as a photo technician. Um, he works in a one hour... Uh, photo booth at a, a supermarket and he basically becomes obsessed with the this family who bring their photos to him to be developed and to the point that he starts working his way into their lives 
Um, Robin Williams, if anything, does crazy exceptionally well, and he's done it throughout his career. He did it well in Insomnia. He does it well here, and he also did a phenomenal job in an episode mm-hmm. of Special Victims Unit as well. So, if you ever get a chance to see Robin Williams doing crazy, definitely check it out. And here in particular is just an absolute phenomenal role. Perhaps it would have been what John Doe would have gone if he had been more sort of precise in his um, his motives and worked in a one-hour photo booth. Although that's saying that he does divert photos in his bathtub, so so uh, those would be my picks. Um, and this has obviously been our look back at seven. But um, Kim, where are we going to next? We are going to uh, 1997, two years later, when he does the game starring Michael Douglas. Yep, Michael Douglas, Sean Penn, um, another underrated film in the Fincher filmography. And uh, always exciting to see a chance see exciting to see a chance to see Michael Douglas playing a man of power, which is uh, certainly what we get to see with this one. So it's going to be certainly interesting to revisit. Probably one of the most overlooked films on the Fincher filmography. So it'd be worth seeing whether it's fairly uh, fairly overlooked or not. But um, if you've hopefully you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you, and uh, if you could uh, hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us, it really does help us out. Much like leaving us a review, let us know what you think of the show. You can also uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're also on Instagram as well, and uh, you can check out our full archive at moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com, which not only has our complete archive of episodes, the After Hours, the Shark Week episodes, we also own there have our Friday Film Club, where every Friday myself and Kim each pick a film and we put it together into a fun double bill. Sometimes the theme. Sometimes there's not, but either time, it's just a chance for us to talk about some really fun movies. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next time to discuss the game. Good night. There's always a diamond friendly. Sitting in the live hotel The hearts built the lessons With her hundred miles to hell If there was only something between us If there was only something between us This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.